The title of our message today is The Harvest of the Earth and the Grapes of Wrath. The shorter message that I have is The Grapes of Wrath. A lot of times there's this accusation that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are two different kinds of gods. That the God of the Old Testament seems to be a God who is, judge, who is, who, who is full of judgment and who is angry, who makes a lot of laws. And then you've got Jesus who is God, who is very acceptable and very loving. And it seems to be that they are two different people. This is an accusation that people make. The God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Well, after the study today, you're not going to think that. What you find is that God has some aspects to who he is that will direct how he reacts and responds. God is love. So we expect him to be loving because he is love. But God is also just, which means he's going to treat people justly. So when one person mistreats another person, then God, when he was making laws in the Old Testament, had punishments and corrections for the person that was unjust towards someone else. So God is also just and God is love and God is also a judge. And as a judge, he is a righteous judge. He's certainly not an unrighteous judge. He is a righteous judge. And let's just think for a moment about standing before a judge. Do you wanna stand before a righteous judge or an unrighteous judge? I guess that depends on how guilty you are, right? If you're really, really, really guilty and the judge will take a bribe, you're probably pretty happy. But no one else is happy with that. Years ago in Reader's Digest, they used to have a column that was a regular column um, on um, the outrageous judge. And it would have a couple, three stories of judges that did things that were outrageous like giving murderers a light sentence or letting someone go after being in jail for only a certain amount of time and then they would get out and they would rape and they would kill someone. By the time you read the stories, you were not really happy. That's not the kind of people that we want as judges. We want judges who are gonna make good, solid decisions. We want judges that are gonna be just and that are gonna be right. And God is a good and a right just uh, judge. And he is just and he is loving. Now, in chapter 14, we are in an interlude. In chapter 14 in the book of Revelation, we are in an interlude. There is a break in the action. We are given previews in chapter 14 of up and coming judgments near the end of the book. Now, a basic outline of the book of Revelation, or should I say the tribulation period, a basic outline of the tribulation period is seven seals on a scroll. So they're sealed by a signet ring or a signet stamp, and then they're opened and judgments or events come forth, mostly judgments, but every once in a while an event comes out of the seal being opened. And out of the seventh seal comes seven trumpets. And these trumpets are sounded and events or judgments happen by these trumpets. And then there's the final seven bowl judgments. 
And these bold judgments are called the bowls of the wrath of God. So within these bowls is God's anger that has been built up over time that he pours out on the world. Now, in these 21 different things, we find interludes, parenthetical sections that tell us more information. There's information that we needed to know. We needed to know about the two witnesses. We needed to know about the Antichrist. We needed to know about the false prophet who was going to make uh, an image and a voice was going to be given to that image. Those were all parenthetical sections that gave us more information about what's happening during the seven-year trial and tribulation period. Now, it's called in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. And the Bible says over and over again, this is not just a couple of times, the day of the Lord is a day of his wrath and it is a day of his indignation. So the day of the Lord, Jesus said there is a time coming on this earth that is worse than anything that you're ever going to see, worse than anything that this world has ever gone through. That was still in the future at the time of Jesus and it is still in the future from our time as well. Now, after giving us these interludes, he'll get back into it, but we've got a couple more thoughts that have to be covered. And one of them is this idea of the grapes of wrath, the idea of God's wrath. When we get, where we get in this chapter, chapter 14, we get seven previews of events that happened. You remember, we saw the 144,000 in heaven with Jesus. It's a preview. It's just like when you go to a movie and you get a preview before a movie. It's going to give you a preview of something that's coming, coming attraction. And so it gave us a preview of the 144,000 with Jesus in heaven following him wherever they go. We saw a preview of the destruction of Babylon. Out of all the questions I get from the book of Revelation, the majority of them are on Babylon. Who is Babylon? Who's the whore that rides Babylon? Why is it destroyed? Why are people upset when it's destroyed? These are questions that I get and we're going to get into all of that. There's more written in Revelation about the city, of, the city of Babylon and its destruction than any other topic. So we had a preview of that. Well, now we get to the last two previews. There's been seven of them in this chapter. We covered five last Wednesday. We get to the last two now. The two... The two uh, previews that we see are the harvesting of the earth and then the harvesting of the grapes that are going to be trampled by Jesus when he returns. So these previews are of the coming attractions of Jesus when he finally takes control and brings judgment on this earth. We pick it up in Revelation chapter 14, Verse 14, then I looked and behold, a white cloud and on the white cloud, one sat like the son of man, having a head, uh, having on his head, a golden crown and in his hand, a sharp sickle. Now we see this and, and identify him quickly as Jesus because we see Jesus often in the clouds. We're told that that he is in the clouds when we meet him in the air. We told that he's going to return on the clouds. Listen to what it says in Acts 10, 42. And he commanded us to preach uh, to the people and to testify that it was he 
who was ordained by God to judge the living and the dead. That's not the passage I was thinking of, but it does fit that he's returning to judge and uh, Paul is giving direction to the Gentiles that God had told him that he was going to come to judge the living and the dead. So he's going to come now and this is the judgment of the living and you're going to have the judgment of the dead when there is a resurrection after the tribulation period, still in the book of Revelation, still to come. You're going to have a, a resurrection of those who are not in Christ and they are resurrected to the second death, it says. There's the first resurrection, which you and I will be a part of. And then there is the second death where those who are resurrected into a body will be judged by God. But he's going to judge the living and the dead. And what we're going to read here today is him judging the living. Now, John 5, 22 and 23 says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So these are passages telling us that Jesus is the judge. When we think of Jesus, we think of little Jesus, meek and mild. We think of pictures of him with a lamb around his neck. We think of him compassionate to the woman caught in the act of adultery, compassionate to the woman that wept at his feet, eating with sinners. And all of that is true. The, the Bible says God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but he still is the judge and all judgment has been committed to Christ. This is where the world doesn't know who Jesus really is. You guys realize that we're not part of the world, right? We are citizens of heaven and we are passing through this world and every once in a while, the world will let us know that we are not a part of it. We, that I, I, I talked about that this weekend happening in movies. You go to a movie and all of a sudden something happens in the movie and you realize, ah, I'm not part of this world. This is something that's not for me. This is for someone else. And we're not part of the world. And the things that are happening in the world today that we find that are outrageous, that's the world. And we are a part of Christ. But there's also within progressive Christianity, this idea that you just want to follow Jesus. You don't want to follow the God of the Old Testament. You don't want to follow the God of Paul, but you want to follow Jesus. So you just read about Jesus. If you're going to just follow Jesus, you can't say, someone told me one time, Jesus never said anything harsh to anyone, never said anything about sin to anyone. Too much of my response was, yes, he did. A lot, not only a little bit. So this idea that they have of Jesus in their mind, who is kind and compassionate and loving towards sinners, which is true because he was, is not the complete picture of Christ. There is another aspect to him. Part of that is that he is the judge. Now, Think of all the evils that have been done when God has to intervene to judge. In, in order, another question we get a lot is why is there evil? Why did God create evil? I actually got that question earlier today in our Q&A. Why did God create evil? The answer is God did not create evil. Evil is when you have the absence of good. God is good 
And when someone rejects God, then what's left is evil. And not everybody becomes massively evil when we, they reject God. They can still be good by human terms. We know that. But evil is explained by the absence of, of God in people's lives. And there are people that become and do evil things as a result of that. And in order for there to be a choice, God gave us a choice. God didn't make robots. You're going you're gonna to love me no matter what. Do you love me? Yes, God, I love you. Like you have to because God made it. No, God gave me a choice. I could choose to love him or I could choose to live for myself. And if I choose to live for myself, there has to be the opposite of good. Since God is good and my choice to live with him is good, if I make a choice to live apart from God, then I'm living and experiencing evil. Evil is there as a rejection of good. And now evil has to be judged. Now, people think that people are basically good. And I think that, I don't know, I don't know what percentage. I think there are people who are basically good by human standards. But there are also people that are very evil. And I don't know what percentage. But I think there's a high percentage. I think there can be people who are basically good who have moments of real evil that is in their lives. And if we could see everything that, that men did to women or women did to men or people did to children, if we could see all of the evil, really truly evil things that are happening in Tucson tonight, we would probably be overwhelmed. We would probably say, I don't, I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear about it. Then multiply that in every city by 8 billion people, 8 billion plus now around the world and all of the evil that there is now. And then think about all of the evil that there has ever been through all time and that God is the judge. And God has intervened in times past. God intervened in the city of Nineveh because Nineveh had done evil things. And when you read about what the Ninevites did, they were brutal people. But God sent Jonah to warn them of that evil. And by the way, you read the book of, of Jonah sometimes, it's only a few chapters, but there's a good possibility that what he's describing is dying in the belly of the whale, not surviving. So when people tell me, are you, you think that God, you know, caused, caused somebody to stay alive in the belly of a whale? I say, no, I believe something even more remarkable, that he died and God resurrected him. That's more remarkable than keeping someone alive because people could keep people alive, but God could resurrect someone. And I think that Jonah was actually resurrected. I think it, as you read it, it's there. God intervened with the Ninevites and, and the Ninevites changed. Jonah didn't want him to because he hated them for the evil they did. And so he went up basically with his popcorn and sat in a shade tree to watch what was going to happen. And then his shade tree died and he got mad. And then God said, you're more angry that your shade tree died when there's 120,000 Ninevites that don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, there was 120,000 children in Nineveh that if God destroyed Nineveh would be killed and God cared about them. But Jonah cared more about the shade tree and wanted the 120,000 that didn't know their right hand from their left hand. He wanted them to be killed. God intervened with the Canaanites. 
This is often brought up as an accusation against God. Why did God command the children of Israel to kill and drive out the Canaanites? Because the Canaanites were offering their children to their God. They were offering their children to Molech. They, and Molech is the God of pleasure. And there are places found in Israel today where there are burials of many children around the high places where Israel ended up worshiping Molech. We're not just talking about the Canaanites. Israel did it later on and God removed them from the land because of it. You say, well, if they uh, sacrificed their children to Molech and God removed them from the land, then shouldn't God have removed Israel from the land for doing the same? And the answer to that is yes, and he did. He took them out of the land and brought them into Babylon because they had begun to do the same things that the Canaanites had done. Now, we look at that today and we think, what a horrible atrocity. They killed their children. They took newborn children and they laid them on the arms of Molech, which burned them to death. But we also still live in a world where babies are being killed when they're in the womb. And oftentimes, and now that the line's been drawn, there are states that have made abortion illegal but there are also states that have made abortion legal up to a full term. What's the difference between a baby inside of the womb and a baby outside of the womb in terms of being human? I understand that they're not breathing air yet, but does not breathing air make them not human? Does not being able to breathe on their own make them not human? Are they still human? And if they're still human, you say, well, I, don't, I, I believe that in the cases of rape and incest that it should be allowed. But do you believe it's a human? If you believe it's a baby, but in the cases of rape and incest, if there were a two-year-old baby here beside me up here today, and that baby was a result of, of a rape. By the way, I met someone not, not that long ago that was a result of a rape. And his grandmother raised him. He's really glad that he was raised by his grandmother. Would it be okay to kill that two-year-old baby that was a result of a rape. So now because it's inside of a womb, is it okay to kill it? And so we have some 50 million babies that have been killed since Roe versus Wade became legal. And now it's illegal and gone back to the States and the battle isn't over. But let me ask you, if God judged the Canaanites because they were causing their children to pass through fire, which was an act of convenience for them a lot of times, they didn't want the children. And so they sacrificed it for pleasure. He's the God of pleasure. And so today, if people don't want children, so we don't want any unwanted children in the, in the world, so we believe in abortion. So by that means, every unwanted children, child could be destroyed by that same argument. Look, it's not good to have an unwanted child in the world, but you can't kill unwanted children. That's not the solution. It's not the way to handle it. And my point is, is that God is going to be just for judging the world that qualifies these things as being okay and justifies themselves by allowing it to be done. And I am sorry that this is painful for some. I realize that the amount of women that have had abortions are many and you live in a culture where they told you it was okay. There's been a lot of lies that are told to you. I blame the people that are making money off of it 
more than I blame someone who has gone through this. And there is forgiveness available for you. And if you're struggling with it, if it's something you struggle with, then uh, Hands of Hope has counseling for women that have had abortions to be able to handle them. So it's difficult. It's a difficult topic. But we're talking very real world stuff here. When we talk about why would God judge the world, why would God judge the world? Think of the things that are being done. That's just one of the topics. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God. Now, recently, Sodom and Gomorrah has been discovered. You can look up Dr. Stephen Collins. He's a, he's a, uh, he's a, um, a psychologist. He's a um, archaeologist, and he has discovered Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting to me, in the days that we live, that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah have been discovered. They have been called a myth by many people, but now they're discovered. It's been in major newspapers. There's been major press releases that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah have been found, but it hasn't been picked up by most papers. In other words, major papers of New York Times have, have released it, that it's been found. But it's not been picked up. People don't hear about it. Why, why, why do you, why, you have any idea why that you think that might be? The major papers haven't picked it up today. Now, do you remember why the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? It says that they had plenty of food, that they lived in ease, that they didn't take care of the poor and that they did despicable acts. And so God destroyed them. I think about America today. I think about the civilized world today. We live in ease. We have plenty of food. We have time on our hands. Do we take care of the poor? Do we do despicable acts? In the middle of this month especially, you see things on TV and you see people displaying themselves in ways that you go, I don't know. This is, this is why I say we're not part of the world. That's the world. More and more the world's justifying that. That's not who we are. So when God judges this world, is he going to be justified in judging the world? Now, there are going to be plenty of people who say he's not. Now, the, the generation that Jesus returns to will be the most wicked generation. It's not that wicked generations haven't come and gone. And, and in the 20th century, there were more people killed in wars than any other time. In the 20th century, there were more people killed by communism. Here, here recently, I heard a, um, an atheist talk about how many people died under Christianity. That that is the, the, the worst blight on the world has been Christianity. Now, a lot of people have killed under Christ, the name of Christ. Okay, we had the Inquisition. It was under the name of Christ. But you and I both know it wasn't Christians, right? It wasn't Christians who killed them. These were people that were doing things in the name of Christ because the Bible says don't do that. The Bible says don't do that stuff. And so they were doing it. But it suggested that there's somewhere between 30,000 and 300,000 people that were killed during the Inquisition. Communism in the 20th century 
killed somewhere between 100 million and 300 million people. So many we don't know. And to the atheist that says Christianity is the biggest blight upon the world, that's atheism. Communism is atheism. And even though you would want to deny that, you would want to say it's communism is its own religion. It's not atheism. They do not believe in God and have killed more than in the 20th century than all the Christians that so-called Christians over the years. Now, we often see Jesus coming on the clouds. Daniel chapter 7, it says the Son of Man comes and joins the Ancient of Days. So this is Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, We who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will be caught up together and meet the Lord in the air. I don't know how you deny that passage. People do. I'm still looking for someone to explain to me how you are a Christian and what you do with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 if you don't believe that the, those who are alive during the resurrection are going to be caught up to meet him in the air. He also has a sickle in his hand, which is an implement for harvesting. In Mark 4, 26 and 27, it says, And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day. The seed should sprout and grow, and he does not know how the earth yields a crop by itself. First the blade, then the head, after that the full grain of the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. So he has come to harvest the earth. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap. For the time has come to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Now the word for ripe, in the end of verse 15, the harvest of the earth is ripe. That word in the Greek is used 16 times in the New Testament and, and 15 of those times, it's overripe or withered. It's, it's, it's beyond ripened. God has been so patient because he desires people to get saved. The Bible says about the return of the Lord that God's not slack concerning his promises, but desires that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants more people to get saved. And so he waits. I think of Methuselah. Methuselah, longest man who ever lived, right? Bible trivia question. Who's the longest man who ever lived? Methuselah. He was the son of Enoch. His name means when he dies, it will take place. When you map out Adam and it gives you, the, you can do this on your own in the Bible. It gives you when Adam was born, how old he was when he had Seth. It tells you how old Seth was, how old Seth was when he had his kid. You can go all the way to Enoch and then go all the way to Methuselah's death. Methuselah dies in the year of the flood. He either died in the flood or as his name by of his father, Enoch, who was a prophet, Enoch walked with God and was no more because God took him, which means he didn't die. Okay, and, and someone told me he did die just as he took him. In Hebrews, it says he didn't die. So the Bible tells us he didn't die, but he was a prophet. And Methuselah died in the year the flood came. So Enoch names the son. When he dies, it will take place. And God allows him to be the longest man who ever lived. God, has not, God is not bringing his judgment when it is due. It is past due. 
because God is long suffering, because God, is, God wants to see people come to Christ. And so it is past due. It speaks of the long suffering of God. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now in verse 17, it says, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, him, him having a sharp sickle. And another angel came from the altar and had the power over fire. Now this other angel that has power over fire probably has a connection to the lake of fire that we're going to see later on in the book of Revelation. But this angel has power over fire. It's just his superpower, I guess. It says, and he cried with a, and cried with a loud cry to him with a sharp sickle. So this is the angel comes out with a sharp sickle. Thrust your sharp sickle in gather the clusters of the vine of the earth and of her grapes are fully ripe. Again, past ripe, that's the, the word. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vines of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside of the city and blood came out of the winepress. Now, this is a preview of the Battle of Armageddon. Men gather in the Battle of Armageddon to fight the Antichrist and his forces and the kings of the East and their forces. And when Jesus returns in the middle of it, they turn and battle against him. And the blood, it's going to say in a moment, will run to the horse's mane. Jeremiah 25, 30 talks about this event. Now, I didn't get this to the media team, by the way. Sorry, I meant to send this. I added this in later on in the afternoon and forgot to send it. So it's not going to be up on the screen for you, but let me read it to you. Jeremiah 25, 30. Therefore prophesy against all those words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from the holy habitation. He will roar mightily against the fold and will give a shout and those who tread the grapes against the inhabitants of the earth. Isaiah 50, 63, one through five, same, same deal. I forgot to get this to the media team. Listen to what it says. Isaiah 53, one through five. Who is the one who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who spoke righteousness, mighty to serve. Why is your apparel red and your garment like one who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the people no one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood has sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained my robe. For the day of the vengeance is in my heart and the year of my Redeemer has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. 
Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me and my own fury, is, it sustained me. It speaks of him coming to the earth and judging the earth. And this is the grapes of wrath. Now it goes on to say in the very last verse, up to the horse's bridle, uh, excuse me, it says, um, and the winepress was trampled outside of the city and the blood came up uh, out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 farlongs, which is about 180 miles. Now, the, the valley of Kidron, which is in Jerusalem between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, turns into the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which turns into the Valley of Jezreel. By the Valley of Jezreel is a mountain that you would say in, in Hebrew, Armageddon, Ar, a Mount Megiddo. That's the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. That's where the battle will be fought. So we're, we're, this is a preview. So now when you watch a preview, they're not giving things away, right? They're, but they're giving you enough information to where you go, okay, okay, okay. So we, we haven't done any studying tonight on what the battle of, the, of, of Armageddon is going to be. That's yet in the future. All we're getting is a preview. And in this preview, I believe that we see the justice of Christ as a judge when he will finally take care of things upon the earth. When he will say, that is enough. Now I have a couple of suggestions in closing. First of all, I suggest that if you did see everything that's happened on the world up until this point, and you were the judge responsible to make sure that things got taken care of, that you might have already have taken care of it. That maybe one night of seeing things might make enough for you to go, you know what, that's it, let's go ahead and wrap things up now. It is a merciful thing for God to stop the evil or to stop the madness. The world is full of madness and people are, what people are doing to people, the evil that is done to people. And even though a choice was given and go, well, you could choose good or you could choose evil and be, people do things from evil, there comes a point where it has to stop. And what we're reading about now is a preview of when it stops. And people say, well, why didn't God create a world where everything is great and there's no tears and there's no sorrow and there's no death and there's no lame? That world's on its way. That's the, that's the world that you as a believer have joined. That world will be here. Right now, this world will come to its end. And it will come to its end by Jesus who will trample the grapes himself, whose robe will be covered in blood. Now, three things in closing. Jesus is the savior and the judge. You will deal with him one way or another. You say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. You don't have to. But you will stand before him as the judge one day. This is, this is the grapes of wrath on the earth at the end of the age when he returns, establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. But then there's going to be a resurrection and some are going to be resurrected to everlasting life and some are going to be resurrected to everlasting contempt. And those who are part of the second death will stand before God and the books will be opened and they will be judged. And Jesus said, the father has committed all judgment unto me. So it will be Jesus who was judging when the books are opened.
one way or another. No wonder the Bible says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He is, you either confess it as your savior, but you will confess him as God as well because you will deal with Jesus. All roads do not lead to Rome, but all roads, roads do lead to God. And I don't mean like whatever religion you're following leads to him. I mean, you will either come to him through Christ or you will come to him in another way. Number two, he will harvest the earth. Let's sow good seeds so that at least that part of the harvest will be good. He harvests the earth and he waits till the very end and he harvests it. What kind of seeds are we sowing in the world today? And number three, God is waiting for the last second so more people can get saved. God's desire is that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. That means, does that include you, by the way? God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Does that include you? God wants you to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And if you haven't done that, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that before you leave here tonight. Told you it was a tough passage, didn't I? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, thank you that we can take time to cover your word. And Lord, we are, we are thankful for your word in its entirety. Because what would it mean to us if we saw that there was never a judgment, that people would never be judged for the wicked things that are done? If you winked at sin, if you winked at wickedness, we know you didn't wink at sin. You died on the cross for our sins. And we know that you will judge the wickedness of the hearts of men and women. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would help us, that we would walk before you in the midst of this world so people can see Christ. Because the day approaches when this world will be harvested and there will be the grapes of wrath. We thank you for this time we can spend together tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.